I remember, as I'm sure most of you who are married do, the day of my wedding. And actually, I remember days before that. Another day that stands out very clearly in my memory is uh, the day that I asked Julie to marry me, the proposal. Uh, At the time, she and I were both part of a worship team at church, leading worship, and on Sunday morning, I I had chosen the songs, and the last song in the service was a, a song that some of you may know called, I Will Never Be the Same Again. And I had chosen that song on purpose. And so we finished that song, and then in front of the church, I said, um, I chose this song intentionally because, brothers and sisters, after today, I will never be the same again because I'd like to ask Julie Heckman if she would marry me. And there was cheering and everything else. I went back, and she was off to the side singing, and I knelt down and offered her a ring, a small ring, but a ring nonetheless. Um, and what's ironic is I look back on that day and that experience, even though I, I knew or thought I knew that I would never be the same again, uh, even though I thought I knew how marriage would affect me, I thought I knew how it would change me, how God would use my wife to mold me more and more into his image. But now, looking back, I had, I had no idea. <laughs> I, had, I had no idea of the depth of the goodness of God that I would experience by being married to Julie. I I thought I knew. But on that day, the 15th of July, 2000, yes, for those of you who are counting, this year will be 20 years, that day changed everything. We broke some rules on the day of our wedding because we had decided that we wanted to see each other before the ceremony started. So I was alone in the church sanctuary and um, about a half an hour before the the wedding was to start, actually maybe an hour, and uh, the back doors opened and Julie came in alone, all in her finery. And she walked down the aisle, told me that toward me there was no music, there were no distractions, there were no people, there were no oohs and ahs, there were no waving at people, there were no little kids forgetting to bring the rings or girls you know, throwing flowers at people. It was just her and me. And as I, I saw her coming down the aisle um, in that silence, almost awe, um, it, it did something in me that I can't explain. And while I honor my wife as a godly woman, I don't mean to compare her arrival at our wedding to the arrival of the Holy Spirit, um, to the church of God. But what I do want to emphasize is how the disciples had no idea of how profoundly the Holy Spirit's coming would change everything. Even though they anticipated the coming of the Holy Spirit, they looked forward to it, they had prepared, Jesus had told them clearly that it was going to happen and told them what the Holy Spirit was going to do, how he was going to empower them, Uh, the arrival of the Holy Spirit would change them, transform them. It would change history, it would change the world. This event is so momentous in church history that we must give it its due attention. We have seen... Now in Acts, the the transition, and we've seen the preparation 
for the arrival of the Spirit. And today, we experience through the mind and pen of Luke the arrival of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit enters the realm of time and space of the world. He enters the very souls and bodies of those who believe in Jesus. And in so doing, he launches this new entity that today we know as the church. So as we look at this next passage in Acts today, I want us to answer three questions about the coming of the Holy Spirit. They're very profound questions. When, how, and why? Okay, so the questions are not particularly profound, but the answers may be. I'll be reading this account from Luke in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, as the Holy Spirit arrives on the scene. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filling the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. As we begin to answer these three questions, the first one is when. The short answer is during the Feast of Pentecost. That's when the Holy Spirit came. Now today, when we hear the term Pentecost, most people who have some basic Bible knowledge associate that term with the coming of the Holy Spirit. That's why certain parts of Christendom, certain denominations call themselves Pentecostal because of their certain beliefs about the Holy Spirit and because the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost. But this is not a term and it's not a feast that started with the coming of the Holy Spirit. It had been observed in Israel for generations before this day. In the law that he gave his people at Sinai, God ordained that they celebrate the Feast of Pentecost as a feast of gratefulness and celebration of the first fruits of the grain harvest. It was celebrated on the 50th day, that's where the Pente from Pentecost comes in for five, on the 50th day from the first Sunday after Passover. That's how they counted the time. But there's another aspect to the Pentecost feast, and that was that it was also a celebration of the reception of the law or the giving of the law. Hebrew tradition stated that Moses received the law at Mount Sinai 50 days after the Passover in Egypt. So we have a dual celebration of the first fruits of harvest 
combined with the celebration of the reception of God's law. On the one hand, the grain, which nourishes the body. On the other hand, the law, which nourishes the soul. I think there's a parallel there with communion. The physical elements that nourish the body and the presence of Christ that nourishes the soul. And it's on this day that the Holy Spirit comes. It was strategic theologically. It was not accidental that the Father sends the Spirit on this day. Um, my nephew, Samuel, is seven years old, or eight. I need to double check that. Anyway, uh, Samuel, my nephew, he was born on a particular day. And you know what? There was great celebration on that day because Samuel was born. A new life had come into the world, approximately nine months old, but a new life nonetheless arriving on the scene. And that day is celebrated every year because he was born. So on its own, that day is special. But let me share something for me. Samuel my nephew, was born on my birthday. So we share that celebration. We share that in common. He's my birthday buddy. So to me, the fact that he was born is already a wonderful cause for celebration, but it has extra meaning for me because we share that day. So there is extra special significance to the Holy Spirit arriving at Pentecost. He is a testament to the new covenant. The fact that the Old Testament law has been fulfilled in Christ and he is a celebration of the impending harvest of souls for the kingdom of God. He will, so if you think about that, that dichotomy again or the duality I should say of the physical and the soul that the Holy Spirit comes and he literally indwells the bodies of believers. And at the same time, he will nourish the souls of the church with the word of God. Now, in addition to that theological strategic moment, there was also a logistical strategy that we shouldn't miss. The world had come to Jerusalem for this feast. And the text says that there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. More people actually made the journey to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost than they did to celebrate Passover. It had a lot to do with the weather. The weather was much more conducive to travel for Pentecost than it was for Passover. And you heard me read the list of all the nations and regions that were represented. Luke's making a point in his sovereignty. God sends his spirit at the most strategic time possible when the most people would be exposed to the gospel and then have those same people take the news back to their places of origin. The Holy Spirit came at a strategic time, both theologically and logistically, at the Feast of Pentecost. Now we ask the second question, how did the Holy Spirit come? The text answers that he came with three signs. There were three signs that accompanied the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Each of those signs had a significant meaning. The first sign was the rushing wind. This was an audible sign, right? It was something that people could hear. In fact, those 
in the, in the neighborhood apparently heard the rushing wind and they came running outside to find out what was going on. So this wasn't a little light breeze that was coming down the, the, the roadway. This was a rushing wind. We probably would miss a lot of the significance of this wind because of the English language. Because in Hebrew, and I, I realize, I understand that Acts was not written in Hebrew, but in Hebrew, the word for wind is the same word used for breath and spirit. And that's the word, you may have heard it before, ruach, ruach. Wind, breath, spirit. It can be used interchangeably. And wind is consistently a symbol of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. In this particular case, to the, the Hebrews, to the Jews gathered at that time, this wind would have called to mind the prophetic experience and utterance of Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones. And I know that that's not our text this morning, but I think it bears reading. I want you to listen and hear how the words breath, spirit, and wind are used as Ezekiel looks out over this valley of dead bones. And uh, what's interesting is I have the wrong chapter of uh, Ezekiel. So um, it's 37, not 34. Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound. And the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, O my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you 
and you will live. And I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. The wind of the Spirit comes to these bones as the breath of new life. Where people's souls are dry, dead bones, the Holy Spirit breathes into them new life. The Holy Spirit ministers to those who repent the new life of the resurrection of Jesus. The second sign that comes is the visible sign of fire. Fire is a symbol of the real presence of God. Recall Moses and the burning bush. Remember the fire and smoke on Mount Sinai. Maybe you've heard that the New Testament affirms that God is a consuming fire. The fire is a sign of God's presence and as such the Lord is saying the Holy Spirit is God. He is not less than God. He is not more than God. He is God. In his gospel, Luke writes in um, chapter 3 when John the Baptist is baptizing and teaching in the wilderness and some people begin to wonder maybe John, maybe he is, maybe he's the Messiah. And John sets them right and he says, no, 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 listen, I baptize with water, but the one who is coming after me, whose sandal thongs I am unworthy to untie, the one who's coming after me, he will baptize you with the Spirit and with fire. And here we see God baptizing his church in the Holy Spirit and fire, exactly as John the Baptist foretold, the very presence of God with his church. The third and final sign that accompanies the arrival of the Holy Spirit was the miracle of language and understanding. Now, whether this was a miracle of speaking or of understanding or both, we're not quite sure. The point is that the Holy Spirit made it possible for everyone present to hear the disciples speaking in their own native language. Just a side note here briefly. This occurrence at Pentecost is not the same as the gift of tongues that Paul teaches about in his letters to the Corinthians. There are some clear differences. In those occurrences, Paul states that the speaker doesn't know or understand what they're saying and that neither does anyone else unless someone is given an interpretation. In this case, when the Holy Spirit comes, everyone could understand and the disciples were speaking and being heard in known languages, not unknown languages. Additionally, Paul says that the gift of tongues is for believers and for the building up of the church. While in this case, the miracle is clearly for the benefit of unbelievers, those who have not yet surrendered to Jesus. So what's important here to note is that the way the Spirit enables the disciples to communicate with everyone present points to the purpose of universal proclamation. What does that mean? That the gospel of Jesus is made accessible in all languages to all people. It was not intended to be only for a select few. The Spirit proclaims the gospel in a way that makes it accessible and understandable by all. So if we put these three signs together, we see that God is revealing that the Spirit is God, that he is life and that he is the one who opens human ears to the truth of Christ and the truth of the gospel. 
Now we move on to the question, why? And after the last two weeks, I hope that the why of the Spirit's coming would not surprise you too much. The Holy Spirit comes upon the new church to inspire bold witness to the truth of Jesus and the good news of the gospel. What's the very first thing that the disciples do? Verse 11, they were declaring the wonders of God. That was their first response to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In the verses that follow these, you'll see that Peter immediately heads out into the street and starts to preach about Jesus boldly. And that's, that's just clearly pointing to the purpose of the Spirit. The primary purpose, empowering witness in the church. Two things I want to say about this witness. The first is that it is a witness to all people. Remember the roll call of the nations that I just read? Remember the strategic moment of this event? Jerusalem is packed with visitors. Visitors who will now hear the gospel for the very first time and will take that news back to their homes and they'll hear it in their native tongue. The Holy Spirit empowers witness to all people. And it's interesting to think about the fact that here at this moment, we see a reversal of what happened at the Tower of Babel. Do you remember that Old Testament story in Genesis? When all the peoples of the earth had gathered together actually to rebel against God, saying, we don't need you, God, on our own, together with our strength, working together, we are going to build a tower that reaches to the skies. It is going to be a symbol of our strength, our accomplishment, the fact that we can care for ourselves. And what happens? God comes down and the text says that God confused their languages so that they were no longer able to communicate with each other. Can you imagine the shock, literally from one moment to the next, of all of a sudden these people that you've been building with and living with are completely unintelligible. You cannot understand what they're saying. They cannot understand you. And what does it call, cause? It causes a scattering. People divide by their language groups and scatter over the earth. And it scattered humanity into nations separated in part primarily by language. And now, what do we see at Pentecost? By the power of the Spirit, the nations are being reunited, not in their own strength, but they're reunited in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And language is no longer a barrier. Where that pride and self-sufficiency resulted in a scattering and a dismemberment, the gospel of Christ results in a reuniting and a new joining. The Holy Spirit empowers witness to all people. Secondly, he empowers witness from all disciples. The text is clear to say that the Holy Spirit came on all of them. All of them were filled with the Spirit. All the known disciples, all the known believers that were gathered together, um, sources seem to think maybe about 120 people, that's a number that's cited in Scripture, men and women, young and old, they were all gathered together. And all of them, all of them are declaring the wonders of God. Not only Peter, not only the 12, 
Not only the men, all of them. So the Holy Spirit empowers all disciples to be witnesses of the gospel. And note that the people are amazed that the ones speaking are primarily Galileans. That might not mean a whole lot to you, but the Galileans were the hillbillies of the day. I, I don't want to speak uh, pejoratively of any particular group in the world today, so I'm not going to compare Galileans to a group, but they were considered backward, uneducated, they were definitely not the elite of society in any way, in any way, and they had a distinctive accent, which when people would hear in, in ancient Judea, they would immediately associate it with ignorance and stupidity. Okay? And so these are the people that the Holy Spirit first speaks through, and it shocks everybody. They're like, these are Galileans. How can this be happening through Galileans? And it, again, God is making a statement with this that his spirit empowers all disciples. Uh, I don't remember if it was last week or the week before I gave the example about my frustration with my little lamp that's next to the place where I have my quiet time when <clears throat> certain unnamed sons unplug it and leave it unplugged. Anyway, we have a number of different lamps in our home. That's not the only one. Some are nicer than others. Some are brighter than others. Some are taller. Some are shorter. Some are newer. Some are older. Some are uh, of higher quality. Some are cheaper. Um, some are in better repair than others. But the shape of the lamp doesn't matter. The quality doesn't really matter. The design and the beauty doesn't matter. None of that contributes to the lamp's ability to illuminate. What matters is the power flowing into it. So no matter how beautiful or new or expensive a lamp may be, if it is not plugged into a power source, it will not illuminate, it will not give life. What matters for all of those lamps in our home is the electrical force running through it. So to the disciple, and by disciple I'm saying all believers because scripture does not give us a paradigm to understand a believer who is not a disciple, okay? So when I'm saying disciple, I'm talking about all believers because all believers should be disciples. What matters is not uh, race or education or gender or economic status or appearance or intelligence. What matters is the surrender to Christ, the infilling of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers witness. The power is his, it is not ours. So as we tie this together, I have a few close, closing thoughts I want to share. The first of these is that this baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs once in Acts. And it's for the church for all time, once for all. Now yes, there are examples in Acts and we'll, we'll come to them and we'll examine them where the Holy Spirit infills or fills a specific individual or a group at a specific moment for a specific purpose but that's a different, it's a specific empowering at one moment. It is not another baptism of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit baptized the church with his presence at Pentecost. And from that moment on, every individual who repents of their sins, 
who trusts Jesus Christ as the only sacrifice that is able to pay for our wrongdoing and our sin to make us right with God the Father. And the, and, and the person repents of their sins and believes in Jesus, they are automatically members of the church universal. Because what makes a person a member of the universal church, I'm not talking about the local church, the universal church, is a surrender to and a belief in Jesus Christ as the savior of the world. And when that person is born into the church, they are born into the baptism of the Holy Spirit that has already been given to the church of Christ. The second thing that I I want to say uh, in closing is just because the witness is intended to go to all people and from all disciples, does not mean that every disciple will surrender to that call. And of course, it doesn't mean that everyone who hears will believe. 1 Thessalonians 5.19, Paul's writing to believers and he, he, he gives this strange warning. He says, believers, do not quench the spirit. Uh, the 1984 NIV says, do not um, put out the spirit's fire. And what that means is do not ignore or refuse to do what the Spirit impels us to do. Uh, I think most of us imagine that we want the power of the Spirit in our lives, right? But if the primary purpose of the Spirit is to empower us to witness, if we are refusing to witness, to be witnesses, and we're trying to say, well, I want the power of the Spirit in other areas of my life, the primary area is witness. So if we're cutting that off, we're quenching the Spirit's power. On the other hand, we see in this passage the hard hearts of those who see and hear miracles. They, people who see and hear, well they hear the wind and then they see these Galileans speaking in all different known languages. Perhaps dozens of known languages, they hear it all and they clearly have very hard hearts because what is their conclusion? They're all drunk. Which is in itself one of the stupidest conclusions in history because since when does being drunk give a person greater linguistic abilities? Quite the opposite, being drunk hinders linguistic abilities. Um, So we see here that there are people who see miracles They see this incredible occurrence and they're hearing it as well and their hard hearts say they're drunk. So even though the witness is to all people, it doesn't mean that all people are going to receive it. And just because the witness is supposed to be from all disciples does not mean that every disciple is going to be surrendered to that will and to that power of the Holy Spirit. So as as people... As disciples, we have the choice to ignore or suppress the work of the Spirit in and through us, and let us never do so. Let us be eager and ready to be witnesses in varied ways. There are a number of different ways that that happens, but be aware of that calling that the Holy Spirit has on us. It's no secret to any of you that the world in which we live in today is in chaos. It's broken, people are rebellious, 
People are arrogant. People are hurting deeply. They've been profoundly wounded. The world is suffering. There is persecution and those persecuting. People are dying, literally, physically, as well as spiritually. And it's into this world that Jesus came, into the mess and confusion, the rebellion and the hard hearts. And into the church in this world, God has sent his spirit to empower us to be lights of hope shining in the darkness. May we be so. And may we never put out the spirit's fire burning in and through us. Because on that Pentecost day so long ago, everything changed. And because of the coming of the Holy Spirit, we have been empowered as Christ's witnesses to a dying world.